Good morning, St. Mark's. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Vivian and I'm a student minister here. I'm also married to our associate minister, Jerome. Well, even though I've had a number of years uh, working as a social worker and I've, ha- I've been in ministry for quite a while, I still feel fairly inexperienced when it comes to walking with people through suffering. But I know in my role as a minister, this will be something that I will need to do and something that people will expect me to become, well, good at. I know I've got lots to learn, and to be honest, I still fear an element of fear about it. What should I say is still a daunting question that lingers in the back of my mind. And as experienced as I may or may not be, I don't think that it ever gets any easier. I remember a conversation uh, with some Christian women at one of our previous churches A young woman, probably about 19 years of age, asked a heartfelt question. Will my life be always one full of suffering? Now, without providing too much detail, she had lived through the pain of family violence and family breakdown and the heartache of deaths in her immediate family. Even at such a young age, she had suffered much. I was hesitant to answer her question, but an older lady who was sitting there with us, who I love dearly, said what she thought was the right thing. I'm sure it won't, darling. I'm sure it won't. While this is a comforting thing to say, her answer grated me inside. Can we make such promises? How do we know what she will experience in her years to come? And how can we give such certain, certain answers to the problem of suffering? Well, this section of the book of Job, as we've um, been going through over the last couple of weeks, deals with Job and his three supposed friends as they wrestle with the question of why. Why is Job suffering? The responses of the three friends are there to teach us wisdom. We know from chapters 1 and 2 that Job is innocent, that he has integrity before God, and isn't hiding any secret sinister sin. And as each person has their say, the intensity of this dialogue increases and it quickly turns into a very intense and pointed disagreement as no one wants to concede the error of their worldview. For the friends, God has to be a God who is in control, who is fair and just and who always in this life punishes wickedness. Therefore, if someone does suffer, they are being justly punished for their sins. If this was to be otherwise, God would be, con- would be rendered unjust, inconceivably so. The friends are angry because Job is maintaining his innocence, and Job is angry because his friends are accusing him of being a sinner and of deserving the suffering that he's experiencing. It's become apparent that the words spoken by the friends, these miserable comforters, are actually now adding to Job's suffering. In chapter 19, verses 2 to 3, Job says, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? Are you not ashamed to wrong me? Here's the thing. The privilege of speaking with sufferers is one that is easily abused. Here is Job suffering so much he wished he were dead. Listen to his lament at the end of chapter 10, verses 22 to 22. He says, Turn away from me so that I can have a moment's joy. 
before I go to the place of no return, to the land of gloom and utter darkness, to the land of deepest night, of utter darkness and disorder, where even the light is like darkness. Into this deep darkness of despair, Zophar speaks these words. Are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce others to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? Well, Zophar is obviously fed up with Job's protestations of innocence and feels free to let the insults fly. But notice the tone of arrogance. He will not let Job have the last word and accuses him of mocking God. Verse 4, he says, You say to God, my beliefs are flawless and I am pure in your sight. Well, actually, Job admits that his thoughts are in a state of confusion and agony. And he wishes for insight, for answers and understanding. And though he maintains that he's blameless, remember, that word means integrity. Job isn't suggesting that he's pure or perfect or sinless, but that he's honest with God about his life. Zophar continues, Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom. Zophar is confident, a bit too confident, about what God would say. The irony is that later in the book of Job, God will disclose the secrets of wisdom, but his lips won't speak against Job, but against Zophar and his two friends. And then Zophar has the cruelty to say, know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. In other words, because of your sin, Job, you deserve even more suffering than this. I mean, how cutting and cruel. Job has lost his 10 children. He's lost almost all of his servants. He's lost thousands and thousands of his livestock. He's lost his livelihood, his health, and his respect and standing within the community. This is possibly the worst thing you could say to someone who's suffering. And see how this exposes the harm of wrong theology, of wrong thinking about God. If there is ever a time to avoid bad theology, it's when you're sitting with someone who's suffering. He goes on in verse 7. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? Well, the mysteries of God refers to the very depths of his heart and the limits of God refer to the limits of his authority and power. So together it's a way of describing the fullness of God. Verse 8, they are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths below. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. Well, on the surface, these words don't sound that bad, do they? Zophar is acknowledging that in all the dimensions of the cosmos, God fills all in all. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 11, verse 33. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Zophar's words here seem true. And we find ourselves agreeing with many parts of the friend's speeches. But just as Jerome pointed out last week, the danger of false teaching is that it is nearly true. And here, when they are spoken in arrogance, they are harmful. 
because Zophar isn't applying these words to himself. He's stating them in a way that implies that he knows the depths of God's thoughts, but Job doesn't. And the literary device of irony here, right smack bang in the middle of this chapter, is wonderful. Zophar himself says, Surely he recognises deceivers, and when he sees evil, does he not take note? God does recognise deceivers. And it is clear that this passage is warning us about the dangers of deception and false doctrine. Zophar is so sure he knows God, he is confident to make Job an offer on God's behalf. In verse 13, he says, If you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent. In other words, if you repent and pray, Job, Verse 15, then free of fault, you will lift up your face. You will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as waters gone by. Life will be brighter than the noonday and darkness will become like morning. You will be secure because there is hope. You will look about you and take your rest in safety. You will lie down with no one to make you afraid and many will court your favour. Sounds very enticing, doesn't it? Except, Zophar's advice is irrelevant for Job. We already know that Job doesn't need to repent. And secondly, Zophar's advice is deceptive. Look at his promises. You will no longer be ashamed. This suffering too shall pass. It will be like the water's gone by. You'll be secure once again and popular in this life. Does this sound like the Christian gospel? Do we promise those who repent that sort of a good life? Become a Christian and it will all go well for you. It sounds like the prosperity gospel, not the gospel of our crucified Christ. Christopher Ashe, a biblical scholar, helps us to notice that the motivation Zophar gives to Job for repentance is precisely the motivation of the adversary's accusation in chapters 1 and 2. The adversary thinks that Job has only been a righteous man in order that his piety, his righteousness, will win him prosperity. If Job repents now in order to regain these blessings, he will actually prove the adversary right. And interestingly, such power and prosperity was exactly what the devil would tempt Satan with in the desert thousands of years later. Zophar closes his speech with a terrifying threat. But the eyes of the wicked will fail and escape will elude them. Their hope will become a dying gasp. In other words, Job, if you don't take up the offer, you're going to die without hope. He will go even further in chapter 20 to describe in detail this picture of judgment that awaits the wicked and by inference, what awaits Job. In chapter 20, verse 7, he says, he will perish forever like his own dung. Now, I know this is an all-age service and boys are here and they always like to hear about poo. So, guys, this is one of those moments in the Bible where that word is used. Don't do what Zophar does and tell your mates that they're, you know, when your mates are down, don't ever tell them that they're going to die like their poo, okay? That's, that's not, 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 this is what not to do, Okay. 
Indeed, I think Zophar is perhaps the most miserable comforter of them all. So what wisdom is there for us in this text as Christians seeking to comfort not only individuals who suffer, but also a suffering world? Well, I want us to notice three things. Three things about Zophar. One, he is lacking love. Two, he has only a temporal hope. And three, he has a containable faith, a faith that can only handle the determinative and the predictable. Firstly, Zophar lacked love and instead was full of arrogance and judgment. You see, the starting point for our comfort isn't our words, but the state of our hearts. Yet our words will show the attitude of our hearts. Jesus said in Luke 6.45 that the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Have you ever said words like Zophar? Or have you ever reacted to the news of someone suffering with judgment that maybe they got what was coming to them? Or do you think you know God so well that you can speak for him? Very recently, I heard of someone's relationship breaking down. They have a little toddler together and the mum just isn't coping at all. It was tempting for me to think, well... If only she'd made some wiser decisions those years ago when she got into a relationship with this guy and then decided to have a baby with him. And as I spoke to this woman's support person, she shared that because this woman knows she's made some bad decisions, she's afraid of the shame and is reluctant to seek help and share her struggles. Listen to what Job has said back in chapter 9, verse 28. He says, I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know that you will not hold me innocent. Our judgment adds to people's suffering because of the shame it heaps on them. I think we can all be reminded to stop judging and get back to compassion. As the church at large seeks to heal its reputation for the wrongs it has done in recent history, And as it seeks to still be a valid voice in our culture, I think the wisdom found here in Job is critical. Zophar shows us the foolishness of speaking judgment on behalf of God. Let's leave the judgment to God. He alone is judge. Like Job, a world that is hurting, broken and suffering needs grace and love, not judgment. And there is also the strong warning here against arrogance. We can't fathom the mind of God. Let's face it, we don't know why bad things happen, whether to good people or to bad. Yes, sometimes there are consequences for sin and bad decisions, but this isn't always the case. Our world, our created order, our societies, our communities and relationships aren't right. They're not as they ought to be. And sometimes suffering isn't anyone's fault. As Christians, we've got to admit that we sometimes don't have all the answers. And even if we think we do, we should never put our theories ahead of love. A German writer named Goethe said that we can only understand what we love. Love, compassion and grace have to be our starting point if we want to offer any sort of wise comfort. 
Secondly, unlike Zophar and his temporal hope, a hope only in the things of this life, we can offer a sure and eternal hope. Not a cliche hope that says this too shall pass. Not a worldly hope like that offered by the prosperity gospel that says repent and then all will be well for you. Your grief will melt away and your life will start getting better again. The Christian hope is not found in this world. It's not in worldly prosperity or security. The Christian hope acknowledges suffering right at its core, the suffering of our Saviour Jesus Christ, the one who suffers with us, whose tears and agony mingle with ours. And somehow in the depth of his suffering, in his identification with the world's pain, he makes the way for the restoration of the world. This is the Christian hope. He united our suffering with his own and took it to the cross. And he put it to death so that the root of what is wrong in us and in this world can start being transformed so that the deep things of darkness can start to be overcome by the light. Look at what Job says in this chapter following Zophar's speech, in chapter 12, verse 22, he says, he reveals the deep things of darkness and brings utter darkness into the light. This is the work of Christ, so that evil can start to be pushed back, so that what has been corrupted can start to be put right. It is by Christ's brokenness that the brokenness of this world can be healed. And the Christian hope is also in the eternal. We are united to God not only through Christ's death, but also through his resurrection, through his victory over darkness, through his eternal reign of glorious grace. Though we don't always know the reason for our suffering, the Christian hope we offer to the world is that Jesus' suffering was for a reason. Jesus' suffering was for a reason. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, the risen Jesus Christ, the one who was seated on the throne, said, See, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the Christian hope, the certainty that God is making all things new, that he is renewing all that is broken. Despite all the suffering around us, God is still at work in the world and he doesn't stop loving and he doesn't stop being good. And of course, we have to offer this um, sensitively. We don't offer this sort of hope insensitively. We're here to wait with people, to ask God for wisdom about when and how to share this hope. And we must always share it in the same spirit of love that we're trying to offer. And finally, unlike Zophar, who had a containable faith, who couldn't believe that God could work outside the parameters of divine retributive justice, that the good get rewarded and the sinner gets punished, we offer the possibility of a faith that can handle the unknowns. Throughout the book of Job, as Jerome highlighted to us last week, Job was crying out for a mediator, for someone to step in between him and God and between him and his friends to bring the verdict and to put right once and for all who was in the right. Listen to his plea in chapter 9, verses 32 to 33. He, that is God, 
He is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. You see, there is a mortal who now mediates for us before God, who intercedes for us day and night, who brings us and God together. His name is Jesus. Jesus was the unpredictable Messiah, the one who could not be contained by human desire or even its wisdom, who could not be restrained by human expectations, but chose the foolishness of the world to shame the wise by willingly accepting humiliation and torture on a Roman cross to defeat the very power of death itself. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Our Christian faith is in this Messiah and in the power of his death to testify to the love of God. Romans 8, verses 34 to 39 says, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We may not be the perfect comforters and we don't have all the answers for why suffering happens, but we don't have to offer empty promises. In our attempts to offer comfort, we must never offer deception. We can't presume to know the mind of God and speak as if we do. But these three remain, faith, hope and love. Through showing love, through the hope that God is still at work in transforming the world's suffering through Jesus, through holding a faith that can handle the unknowns, we can point to Jesus, the perfect mediator, the perfect comforter. For he alone, he alone can bring God's sufficient love to us in our moments of deepest darkness. Please close your eyes and let's let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are our mediator we acknowledge and are sorry that we are often too quick to judge. And we also acknowledge our arrogance. Forgive us, Lord. So fill us with your love, grow our faith and inspire our hope that we may bring your presence to those who are suffering and to this broken world that is so in need of you. For your name's sake, And in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.